Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. This morning, the account of Jesus healing a blind man in John 9 is one of the signs and wonders that Jesus performs in John's gospel. It is related to the earlier healing story of the lame man in chapter 5, which also involves the Sabbath and the work Jesus does, increasing tension between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. John chapter 9 functions as a dramatic unit where opinions about Jesus' identity and work separate those who believe in him or not. Throughout the Gospel of John, there is a stark demarcation between Christian and non-Christian Jews. Just like the blind man, John's community is being encouraged to come to a deeper understanding of Jesus, even when it comes at great cost. John 9 recounts a cure of a blind man, but also metaphorically illustrates the possibility of spiritual healing for all who have been in the dark. Hear now from the Gospel of John. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am he. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. May God's blessing be upon the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Shine to gray, the rain 
Here we are. This morning we enter into week four of the Lenten season, continuing our exploration of God's eternal promise to bestow on each of us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. You know, it's okay to admit that Lent is kind of a weird season. It's a little weird, but it is absolutely vital, and it is absolutely necessary. Lent is traditionally a season of self-exploration, a journey of self-sacrifice, and a movement from what is to what is meant to be. Lent is a season of invitation to pause, to stillness and silence as we ponder the passion of Christ in preparation for Easter's glory and contemplate what it means for us personally and corporately. I don't know if you know, but the original meaning of the old English word for Lent means to lengthen. And that seems appropriate. In the northern hemisphere, as the earth emerges slowly from winter's dark, the daylight hours lengthen, and natural signs of new life appear everywhere. Trees sprout tender green leaves. Infant birds break free from their shells. They're hungry. It's their birthday. It's spring. Maybe you're hungry too for light or renewal or simply to be seen and acknowledged as one who is and always has been beloved. I think hope and hunger for transformation are good. So I want you to notice them I want you to feel the creative energy all around you, urging you forward from within. The season of Lent, as Rev. Mark has told us, is a time of cleansing and purging the lifeless ashes we carry. By letting them out and letting them go, we make room for God's grace and freedom and beauty as only God can provide. As we heard this morning, our reading comes to us from the Gospel according to John. Written somewhere between the end of the first and the beginning of the second century, the structure of the Gospel has most frequently been viewed in two parts. The first, sometimes called the Book of Signs, covers chapters 1 through 12. The second is labeled the Book of Glory in chapters 13 through 20 and then 21. The first section depicts Jesus' public ministry. There he performs wondrous deeds, as Barb mentioned, engages in discussion with opponents in the crowds, and he moves freely between Galilee and Judea. In chapters 13 through 20, it's a little different. Jesus is restricted. He is restricted to discussions with his disciples alone and to the passion experience itself. Our story the encounter with the blind man, details one of seven wonder stories within John's gospel. 
The author of the gospel refers to these miraculous deeds not as miracles, but rather as signs. Semeo is the Greek word. Semeo. It's important to notice that this, this term in the other three gospels, semeo, is only used in reference to wonders to suggest maybe an illegitimate request for a demonstration of power or as expressions of an inbreaking of the reign of God as announced by Jesus. But John, in John, these signs or wonders are indications of the identity of the person of Jesus and point to the bringer rather than that which is brought. The actual wondrous deed performed by Jesus, that's not the critical point of the narrative, rather as a sign, a semeo. It points to something beyond itself, to what an encounter with Jesus signifies. Remember the story with me. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a big one. One of the most popular feasts in Judaism. People flocked into Jerusalem for eight days in memory of their wilderness sojourn. They lived in tents or what they call booths. The festival took place in the autumn after the harvest were all in. One day Jesus and his disciples were strolling along when his disciples saw what they considered to be a pitiful sight. A man who was blind from birth, groveling begging in the gutter, intrigued by the man's horrible plight. The disciples asked Jesus a difficult question. Why? Why was this guy born blind? Did he sin? Or was it his parents' iniquity that caused his blindness? Now, I feel like we need to pause here for a moment. I feel like we need to point out that in the ancient world, this idea that any experience of hardship, physical or otherwise, was the result of some transgression and thus a natural consequence of a God's or God's judgment was completely reasonable, a completely plausible assumption. As such, persons who were born blind, could not walk, had the debilitating disease of leprosy, or were simply poor, were marginalized. They were looked down upon as transgressors, and they were shunned in society. Now, I know that may sound barbaric to our modern sensibilities. Still, we need to remember that from the moment humankind could think at all, we have sought reasonable explanations, I think we still do, for the suffering that we experience and encounter. So, had we lived in the first century world of Jesus, maybe our view of this man might not have differed from that of his disciples. So next, Jesus uses some saliva, some spit. He makes some mud. He smears it on the man's eyes. He told him to go and wash it off in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. The man obeyed and returned with his vision restored. And when the man returns with his sight restored, he doesn't even look the same. His neighbors couldn't even believe that this is the same guy. I mean, some said he was, and others said he just looked like the one who used to beg and was blind. But he's sitting there saying, no, it's me. I'm the one-time blind man. I'm the one that was begging in the gutter. And when they see this, they ask him, how did this happen? How was your sight restored? And I love his answer. In all honesty, he says, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. This guy, Jesus, he rubbed some dirt on my eyes. He told me to wash it off, and boom, my sight came back. Even when questioned by the religious leaders later on in the chapter, the man answered that he didn't understand how this had happened. 
He didn't even know where this character Jesus was. But he knew one thing. Did you hear him? I know one thing. I was blind. And now I can see. It's fascinating. Brilliant story. Layered with meaning. Jesus restores vision to the blind man. But as I mentioned earlier, this sign, this semeo, it seems to point to something else, something beyond itself. Of course, the funny irony of the story is that the blind man receives his sight while simultaneously everybody else loses theirs. Not their physical vision, of course, but their capacity to see, to believe, and to even understand what they have just witnessed. I'm curious, church. I'm curious if we still see things that way sometimes. Do we value every single person? Do we see abundance or deficiency in others? It's clear from the text that Jesus did not see scarcity in this man or anyone for that matter. He didn't point a finger. He didn't assign blame for the man regarding his position or his condition. Jesus answered them saying, look, neither this guy or his parents sinned. He was born blind so that, quote, God's works might be revealed in him. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't believe that Jesus is saying that God caused this man's blindness for this particular moment. Maybe, perhaps, he is inviting his disciples and all of us by extension to see with his eyes, to see abundance and possibility rather than sin and blame. Maybe, just maybe, this is the point of what's happening here. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to exchange our blindness for God's vision. So I ask you again, do you see that? Do you see with the eyes of Christ? Now look, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not pointing fingers. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. I fully admit that at times, especially when I'm driving down I-25, I see scarcity all around me to alarming degrees. It's, it's bothersome. Maybe you can relate. I've noticed that when I'm driving down the highway, anyone, and I mean anyone who is driving slower than me, is an idiot. It's true. I admit it. On the flip side, anyone who's driving faster than me is a maniac. Be fast or slow, I don't care. All I see is deficiency. And blame is freely offered to all. Because after all, I am the only one who knows how to drive, which should be obvious to everyone. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds funny. But you know, it got me thinking. That self-realization, it got me thinking. Is it possible that our blindness allows us to draw lines where God did not intend? Have I made room for God's grace and light in this world? Or do my beliefs limit the possibility of growth and new vision? I sure hope not. I pray daily for grace, that I see others with an open heart, a willing spirit guided by charity, and a singular desire to serve. I want to see as Christ sees. 
So how can we do that? How can we exchange vision for our blindness? How can we begin to see as Christ sees? Well, first, first, I think it all begins by the way you see others. Where we see scarcity and blame, Christ sees abundance and possibility. Seeing like Christ means seeing every single person. Let me say that again. Every single person. Seeing them with abundance and possibility. In other words, people need other people. No one. No one lives a full life in isolation. We were never meant or designed to live in isolation. I believe that the primary mark of our humanity in relationships is not found by simply exercising kindness towards our neighbor. Rather, I would argue that our humanity finds expression because we have a neighbor and recognize her or him or them as such, regardless of any dissimilarity between one person or another, one group or another, one party or another, they can, they must exist in relationship with and for each other. People need other people. Beloved, every encounter, and I believe this down to the marrow of my bones, every encounter with another is truly a gift. It is an opportunity to learn, to grow, to cultivate a relationship that can enhance your own understanding of yourself and the world you live in. I believe that. I really do. I mean, just suppose with me for a minute, just daydream that we will ever get past this division and polarity that plagues our current age. If that is the case, friends, we must begin by casting off our own blindness and working to truly see and value others as Christ does. And that means everyone, not just those who happen to agree with us. Whoops, I said that out loud, didn't I? You know, in the, one of the little rural congregations I served in in Texas for the better part of three years, I met a gentleman named J.B. J.B. was in his 90s when we met, well into his 90s. He lived alone in the same house he was born in. Now, on the surface, <laughs> J.B. was stubborn, he was hard-headed, and he was set in his ways. He didn't have much, but what he had was his and no one, and I mean no one, was going to tell him how to live. Now, J.B.'s theological views were conservative, to say the least. Well, alarmingly conservative, actually. Um, my initial thought when I saw him was a man who had very little to offer and uh, even less of a desire to listen and learn. But then I began to put all that aside, and I began to see something else. Beloved, I watched this frail man loyally attend services every single Sunday for almost three years without fail. I watched as he thoughtfully read his Bible daily and often, followed by his personal prayers and quiet meditations. I saw him kneel and weep as he visited his beloved wife's grave on a regular basis. We sat on his porch. We watched TV together. I listened to stories of his childhood, of his long, hard life. And beloved, I slowly began to see him 
JB taught me more about personal piety, loyalty, and discipline than anyone I have ever met in my life. He was gentle. He was generous. And he was full of love for Christ and his church family. Now look at here. I don't think I ever really changed JB's theological views, if you want the truth. But I can say today, with all honesty, that I am a better man for knowing him. The gift of his friendship is a treasure that I will always value and one that I will never forget. Finding vision for our blindness, seeing with Christ, begins by seeing abundance and possibility in everyone. And that brings me to my second point. Seeing like Christ means that we must also, hear me now, do something. Seeing in this sense of the word is not simply a passive activity. It involves active involvement. I don't know if you caught this, but did you notice that the man in the story did not ask to be healed? Did you notice that? It's a marked difference in most of the stories. He didn't ask to be healed. He was just there. And when the disciples saw this, they saw an opportunity to mince words and have a debate. Jesus, on the other hand, saw it as an occasion to do something. And to solidify that point, right before he smears this mud on the man's eyes, he tells his disciples, I love this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no work can be done. Mm. Notice that sense of urgency in those words and that gracious use of the plural, we. Did you catch it? We must work the works of him who sent me. All of us, he's saying. And friends, there is no shortage of work to be done, and the day is short and fast moving away. Beloved, we must not belittle or ignore this world in which we have been set to play our part, neglecting our calling to help and serve others as we hope and wait for some future glory. And you know what? It doesn't take a grand gesture. It just doesn't. It simply requires eyes that see and a willing heart to help. I read this beautiful quote by author Beth Clark this week, reminding me of the power of simple acts of charity. Ms. Clark writes, I've noticed something about people who make a difference in the world. They hold the unshakable conviction that individuals are extremely important, that every life matters. They get excited over one smile. They are willing to feed one stomach, educate one mind, treat one wound. They aren't determined to revolutionize the world all at once, she writes. They're satisfied with small changes, but over time, though, those small changes add up, and sometimes they even transform cities and nations, and yes, the world. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, said Christ. But then as we read in Matthew 5.14, Christ not only claims this title and office for himself, but for all of you as well. You remember what he said? You are the light of the world. Now, no doubt Christ is the source of our light. And we shine only by the light that he reflects upon us. 
Yet I have noticed that the dark and sterile moon lights the sky at night for multitudes. The moon reflects from its native dullness, a, a radiance that is not natural to it, catching glory from the sun and is itself transfigured by it and sharing it, this light, with others. In and through Christ, we are meant to be the light of the world, helping others to see their own road, changing night into day for them, and enriching and beautifying life right here, right now. So, that's the prayer I leave you with. My prayer for myself is my prayer for all of you, all of us. I pray every day for grace and courage that we, we will truly see others with open hearts and willing spirits guided by charity and a singular desire to serve. So let us shed our blindness and accept the vision of Christ by just remembering two things, that we would see every person we meet with abundance and possibility, and that we would all, as one, accept our calling to spread the light of Christ through our acts of love and service. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.